Today's guest on Multimillionaire Secrets in 30 Minutes is Greg Marshall. Greg is one of the world's most famous yacht designers slash naval architects and has designed multiple yachts that cost over $200 million and have over 300 feet in length. Many of Greg's clients are obviously billionaires, and in this unique episode, I will break down how these billionaires think and Greg's unique hiring, management, and marketing strategies. So Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I wanna jump right in there. What is roughly the most expensive boat you've designed? Uh, around uh, 250, uh, $270 million. We're not sure of the exact price, somewhere in there. So that is a very wealthy individual that made a boat of this price because he obviously has a multiple of that in his fortune. And I'm assuming that there's other people that you've worked with that are roughly as wealthy as this individual or probably even wealthier. Yeah, that's, that's accurate. And it sort of depends on, uh, on what your sort of motivations are as to how big and how expensive you go with your boat. So what have these people that have reached the millionth percentile of financial success, have you found anything in common as far as how they think how they operate, or is it all over the board? What's been your experience? Well, basically, they're all over the board. There's a few common traits that we've picked up of our, from our clients over the years that sort of uh, seem to be similar, uh, similar motivations that make them uh, wealthy or uh, uh, make them run very successful businesses. What would some of those traits be? I would say that... Um, you know, sort of you know, a common uh, thing that I've noticed about all of our customers is they're probably the most curious people on earth in terms of they have, um, you know, fantastic levels of curiosity about just about everything that surrounds them. So you mean constantly learning? Constantly learning. You know, they're interested in why things happen. They're interested in how things happen. And I think it's probably, probably their nature. That's probably the most common thing we see amongst people we work with. Wow, pretty interesting. What have you seen as far as their desires to spend such a large amount of money on something that really may or may not be needed? It's completely emotional. It's not like you need gas for your car or food to eat. It's a very high-end luxury item that no one in the world really needs, but people are very, very accustomed to wanting. All of society wants something like this. Sure. I think it's a case of, uh, for the most part, it's like a milestone goal. It's, um, uh, you know, people used to build giant castles and things like that. And, uh, you know, if they had extreme wealth and nowadays people build uh, very large yachts and, uh, you know, a castle is kind of fixed in one geographic place and a super yacht, you can take your castle anywhere you want. So these modern day castles, super expensive mega yachts, Obviously your services are a percentage of that total cost of the yacht and it's a very large cost by number. How do you approach selling the client to use you for designing and engineering these boats as opposed to the small group of other talented and well-known people that do the similar work? Yeah, the way we kind of process it is that in order to do our job, we have to have, you know, some relatively expensive uh, equipment and a few number of people. And at the end of the day, we have to be able to justify that we can save 
two man hours building whatever it is, um, or we don't provide value. So if we can save two man hours of on the shop floor time or a craftsman's time, um, then we can justify our, our, our expenses. Otherwise, if we can't justify that, you're better off building it on the shop floor and not making the drawing in the first place. So if someone is considering you versus a different design and engineering firm and management firm for the entire project, and they put out three or four bids to the different companies, yours being one of them, do you try and sell to get that client? If so, how do you do it? Or do you let them to decide? What's your process? Well, uh, thought process is coming from a couple of different angles. One, we, um, uh, I've always said that uh, uh, what I, my top line one sentence goal for my company was to be able to look a squillionaire in the eye and say, um, you can't come up with any good reason not to hire my firm. If you don't like my styling, how about this person's in my company? And if you don't like that person's styling, how about the next person? And use that as kind of the roadmap for how we set up the company. So that um, the styling, interior design, those parts are subjective. If you, you know, you have to have, you know, a synergy with the person, you have to have um, a styling that that person likes, you have to have experience in that kind of styling. Um, engineering is a little bit easier because it's less subjective. The system works or it doesn't. And so we sort of broke our design uh, company down into several categories. One is, um, you know, from the engineering side, we had to have enough horsepower. We had to have enough people for the, um, for the kinds of projects we were working on. And we had to have enough experience. And no one person can sort of have all the different um, fields of experience that uh, are needed. So we had to have enough people that we could cover, you know, all the different disciplines in design. Are you an engineer by trade? I'm a naval architect by trade, not an engineer. We do have engineers in the company. So the reason I'm asking is people don't historically think of naval engineers, a naval architect or engineers as people that are able to sell and do sales presentations. So I often think they're be, not. Often they are not. So yeah. I think it'd be interesting to hear in your company, do you have any quote, just salespeople? No. Why is that? No. Most of our work comes from word of mouth. So somebody's seen a boat that we liked uh, and uh, they are maybe sitting in a harbor somewhere and on their current boat and they see uh, a vessel, they might they start making inquiries and eventually end up on our doorstep. Uh, so that's one sort of avenue where we're talking to an individual customer. Uh, that's probably about a third of our work, uh, maybe 40% of our work. Uh, another 40% of our work is um, where shipyards hire us to design a vessel that they want to build in production. And so that really comes from a, uh, a track record of successful production boats. So one case you're working for the individual, the other, the company says, we're going to hire Greg Marshall and his firm because the designs that we pay him for have the highest chance of being successful in the marketplace. Correct. And that is because of the design itself or because they can put your name on it or a combo of both at this point? What do you think? It's a combination of things. And so generally people uh, will vet us fairly heavily to make sure that we haven't made mistakes in the past that would be detrimental to where they're trying to go in their boat. And so a lot of our, um, 
a lot of our um, success is is dependent on uh, as much as anything uh, the fewest number of mistakes possible. So, do you run advertising for any new clients? No, very little, because for the most part, somebody doesn't buy a hundred million dollar boat because they they've seen an ad. We have had it happen, but it doesn't happen very often. Typically, if they see the ad, then what they or see an ad or see a picture or see an article on one of our boats they will have their team kind of um, start making inquiries. We, we will very rarely um, be in touch with the principal right at the very beginning. So would you say then your work is the advertising? Yes, absolutely. So a lot of people don't think of it that way and they think they have to run ads, which is my background, to bring in new customers. Your business is almost entirely, the work is, the advertisement itself and the people that are interested in this type of product, they're all going to see it because this is their interest. They may see it in a harbor. They may see it at a boat show. They may see it somewhere else. So advertising for you really probably wouldn't make any difference. It makes very little difference. You can run ads like the bigger companies, uh, not necessarily design companies, but the building companies will run fairly regular ads to stay in, uh, you know, in people's minds. Uh, but again, you know, at the really top end, um, some of the shipyards run the absolute straightest, the, the strangest websites and strangest ads because they know that they don't uh, really, it's not really where the business comes from. And so it's sort of a way of just kind of having some fun along the way. So when you talk about these different shipyards, and I looked into the projects that you've done, there's various places where when the client comes to you, you do the design, then collectively you guys bid it out to these different shipyards in different countries. It could be done in Canada, it could be done in the United States, it could be done in Taiwan, it could be done in China, it could be Italy, it could be Greece, it could be Turkey, it could be Germany, it could be the Netherlands. What have you seen as far as pricing differences between countries? Are the prices justified? And how different culturally is it working in these countries? And if someone puts up the money for a, quote, more expensive country, is there a return on that or is that all ego-driven? Uh, there's, there's different things that happen. So roughly half of the cost of a boat is materials. And if you control the material specification, then half of the boat uh, doesn't matter whether you build it in New Zealand or Holland or Germany or Turkey or uh, Canada or the US, you know, those materials for the most part will remain very similar if you control the specification. The other part of the equation is man hours. And so, and then profit, I guess the third part of the equation is profit margin. Uh, if you look at the man hours, typically a very, very efficient yard in a first world country will have lower man hours than in other places in the world. And for that greater efficiency and higher cost of living, they will charge more dollars per man hour than uh, a third world uh, country scenario, let's say. Uh, so if you're building a project, you have some different, motiva different motivations, for example. We've done a lot of projects in Egypt where the labor rate is extremely low um, and the boats that we built there have 100% been for Egyptian clients and they have um, a very high import duty on their boats. So their motivation is to build in country and, um, and 
if they triple the man hours, it doesn't matter that much. Other people are motivated, um, for example, by um, seeing a shipyard that they've, uh, they've liked the work of, the boat's the right size, they like the, the chemistry of the people, um, and so they'll go to that shipyard and build the boat there. Other people want to be uh, treated as royalty and are willing to pay the, uh, the extra price for that treatment. So when you're talking about the higher man hour cost because of the, the higher standard of living in that country versus the lower labor cost, is that also equivalent to higher labor cost is more skilled worker, lower labor cost is lower skilled worker, or it's more of that's how much the cost of living is for the worker in that country? No, what you're trying to find if you're, if you're seeking sort of the labor side of the, of the equation is you wanna find that crossroads of efficiency of the worker and, uh, and, and uh, price of the worker per hour. What's your view on labor? Is better to pay for more expensive, higher quality labor or to just turn it into a math equation and more cheap labor is equivalent? Well, I think it, it's a bit of a combination. There's certainly scenarios where you can build a boat just as good for significantly less money. Um, but you also, if the shipyard has extensive track record uh, and has a lot of experience in that size of boat, uh, that's what you really want to get to. You want to get to the experience rather than the, uh, the cost of per hour. Okay. So then when you hire your own team, how many people do you have in your office that are working at these big boat projects at any given time? Um, 29 right now, typically uh, 20, on the big projects, they're working on all different sizes, but typically on the big ones, we would have about uh, 14, 16 people at a time. And how do you do your hiring? Like, is there a process that you go through? Are you the first interview, the last interview? Um, I, I absolutely suck at hiring people. The, um, As do most uh, people, it's very hard. The, um, and the reason is, is that, um, um, from my standpoint, I want to hire people with the intent that they will work with me and, until they're done working. And uh, so that takes, you know, uh, being really careful of who you hire because I'm not, I also suck at firing people. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I generally look at firing people as kind of a, uh, a failure in hiring them. So you're very careful about who you hire? Yes. Very so what does that process look like if, hey, I want to go work for Greg Marshall, naval architect and engineer. I want to build the biggest, most badass, most expensive boats in the world for these crazy clients. How does someone get the how job? It, how it looks like is uh, I, I think in probably 95% of the cases, I have never told somebody what I'm going to pay them. And... Um, and so in most cases, I tell people, you tell me what you need to earn. Uh, you come and work for me for three months at that rate. And at the end of the three months, you either have a job at that rate or you don't have a job because I'm not going to hire you for less after three months because I think you uh, are worth less. Uh, so A, think about the price carefully. Um, and, and show me you can do it. And three months is generally long enough where you can sort of see if somebody has the right pieces. 
And if they, and then you have a, a definite stopgap to say, uh, at the end of three months, we're going to have a discussion, and I'll tell you uh, whether I think you're worth the price you gave me or not. If you're not worth the price you gave me, you don't have a job. So that's really interesting because I've heard of trial periods. My company has used trial periods pretty extensively, but not of that length and not where you determine your pay rate. So are you trying to screen to make sure that someone is realistic about their pay rate or make sure that pay rate is second to them as far as wanting that job and being good at it? Or what was the thought behind? I understand the trial period. What was the thought behind you name what you're worth? Well, it's, um, I always found that uh, discussion uncomfortable, first of all, and I find uh, that I don't have a way of evaluating when I'm staring at somebody, whether, you know, what they're worth being paid, because we don't do enough cycles. If we had a thousand employees, then you start to develop standards for how you pay people and how they increase and how they move up in the world and all sorts of things. When you're a small design firm like ours, uh, we don't have those tools in place to be able to, or structure in place to do that. So uh, what we found is that we've had people come in and, um, you know, what they've suggested that they want to pay, be paid uh, made me fall off my chair. Uh, and then at the end of three months, we went, absolutely, we wouldn't give that person up for anything. Um, and so it sort of starts the first three months off where you kind of um, – uh, you're forced to sort of prove yourself at, and if somebody's, you know, I have no issue with somebody being paid, somebody in my company being paid more than me. If they, um, if they can run a very large team and they can uh, earn a lot of money and take very little babysitting from my standpoint, that just makes my life easier. So they demonstrate they're a rock star and they get yep. what they said they were worth. Absolutely. So if, I, if it's within bounds of what I can pay, of course. Right. But that leads to something, another question I think is really important. So one of the views that we take at my business, um, and we also have tons of employees, the main office has, you know, 200, 250, and then the other areas have probably 800. The view that we take is that every employee we have talks to every other employee. So everyone knows what everyone else makes. So we have to have these systems and cycles that you talked about, because we assume everyone knows and positions turn over. And we know that people thinking salary is unfair is the number one reason they get demotivated. So for you, right. if someone comes in and names a price, then you love them and you give them that amount. Do you take the view that everyone else in the office also knows, or does it ever cause a situation where someone else would want to raise because they now know what the new guy is making? I always talk, first of all, I always try and talk as though everyone's listening. And, um, you know, I've made that sort of a rule in my life that uh, I don't talk like I'm having a private conversation. Because uh, what I've found is that anytime you do talk like it's a private conversation, um, that uh, somewhere along the line you get embarrassed. Same thing on pay. And so, um, you know, for the most part, uh, what we find is, is, is I pay people with the expectation that they're talking to each other and they find, find out what each other's getting paid. I don't offer that as a, as a discussion. But in the, in the same fairness, internally, we, um, we have a sort of a, a um, if you want to be paid like a rock star, then you have to be paid, you have to be capable of running a crew of people without me babysitting you. And uh, so there is sort of, um, 
it's almost accidental actually how it comes into uh, how people sort of line up their own pay expectations. Um, you know, people coming in, uh, junior people coming in, they already have an expectation of what they're worth. And, um, uh, you know, people who are sort of, um, you know, engineers with a fair, fair amount of experience already have an idea of what, you know, the industry is paying for that. Um, and so let's say somebody comes in and they, uh, their expectation is, uh, is a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, you know, for that role, they generally are coming at us with a price uh, that's in the market for that. And then all we're doing is determining whether that, whether that price is worth it or not for that person. So what happens then when that person wants a raise? They've been there X amount of time and it's an open discussion or they can come to you at any time or you say, hey, look, one year is waited. How do you do approach raises? Yeah, how we approach raises is first of all, uh, every year um, you get a cost of living increase that is um, uh, sort of standardized for, in our case, province of British Columbia. And specifically, we try and make it for the city we're in uh, where there's reasonable data. And so my, my process is that, is that at very least your income should stay in keeping with the cost of living increases. And that way, um, that way, as long as you don't get better, get stronger, become more valuable to the company, at least your, uh, your income remains the same. If you're, um, if you're wanting to climb, and some people, first of all, some people don't really have a, a need to particularly climb up. They're happy with a, a certain amount of living and a certain amount of responsibilities. And, and in certain parts of our company, that's just fine. Uh, most people are a little more ambitious than that. They want some method of, of, um, of climbing up. But in order to climb up, you have to have more value to the company. So how do they go about asking for that raise and demonstrating the value? Is it set on time or how do you determine whether it's yes to the raise or no to the raise or even it's time to ask for a raise or you just started, don't ask now? A small, a small company, it happens accidentally. And... Uh, so uh, typically, if somebody asks for a certain amount uh, at the beginning, uh, typically at the, at the end of the three months, we'll, um, if we want to keep them, we'll pay them that amount. Um, if they, at the end of sort of six months, if they really prove that they have the ability to sort of maintain that level of productivity and, and uh, energy and everything else, we'll typically bump up their pay. And the logic is to, is that, in most cases, we try and pay people more than what they asked for. Wait, say that again. Someone comes in, they pass the trial period, you're paying them what they wanted to be paid, but you will proactively give them a raise after three to six months if the work is even superior to the expectations that they set for you. Correct. So you basically have a system that you've honed to weed out people that don't want to work hard, that are not rock stars, and they're ideally not really about the money, although they would like to make more, but you're actually making the job even more valuable to them because they told you what they wanted to be paid, and then you're paying them more than that after three yeah. to six months. Yeah, I'd say most people in our company are paid actually more than what they asked for. So raises are usually coming from you, and it's not other people asking, I'm assuming. Yeah, I, I would say, out of uh, 29 people, I would probably get asked uh, maybe once a year. 
for a and you think that's because the company has such a lack of focus of or need for direct selling. It's basically the work is the selling. The people drawn to that kind of work aren't salesmen and they know that the way to make more money in advance, if it's that important to them, is based on super high quality work. Yeah, and we also have a profit. We have a couple of different scenarios that helps keep people in, uh, engaged. Um, so we take one third of our profit every uh, quarter and we, uh, we take one third of it, uh, goes for um, uh, Gordon, myself, who's my business partner. Uh, one third of it goes into, into the company to sort of make it more stable. And then one third of it goes back to the employees and gets split up. Is it split up amongst the employees based on how high their salary is? So you're weighting it based on essentially as, position? As, as a percentage of salary, correct. Okay, so you've got the end of the year or quarter, however you're annualizing here. One third's going to you and your partner. One third's yep. going into the business. One third's going to employees. Correct. So then they, every employee essentially, do they know it's a third? Yes. So they all can do very quick math and they know exactly what the company and you and your partner are making. Correct. And that does not bother you and has not, not caused problems. Not a bit. So it's basically just full transparency. This is what we're working on. This is how this works. And you are here because you're an absolute fucking rock star. Money is probably secondary to you, but you're going to make a lot of money if you're good. Yep. Correct. The one third that goes back into the company, what do you reinvest that in? Uh, we use that to sort of uh, acquire better computers, better equipment. Uh, we uh, do a lot of research work. And so we use that as our uh, tool for investing in research. Uh, we use it for basically improving, you know, uh, the base, you know, uh, cash of the company to sort of uh, make sure that we can uh, afford the dips, all those kinds of things. Dips as in economy goes bad, the yep. billionaire looks at his stock portfolio, doesn't want to build the $200 million boat anymore. Correct. Or the local government can't afford the new whale watching boats. Exactly. What do you do during those times to keep work coming in and keep the employees busy? Well, about a th third, um, we've never had a dip. <laughs> okay. okay. You know, and so, so you're preparing the for these dips, but they haven't happened. In, th in theory. In theory, um, so what um, you know, we've always been busy. At times, we've made less money than than uh, than we would like to, um, but we've always been busy. So, some of the things that we've sort of honed over the years is we do a lot of regular production boats, where we um, do the design for a reduced uh, uh, cost, and we um, take a higher stake in the uh, in the uh, licensing fees uh, as they sell boats. Uh, that's helped us enormously over the years because uh, we have you know, a lot of different designs that uh, you know, all those different builders have armies of salespeople that are selling those boats hard in the dips. And uh, we collect the licensing fee for those and those help stabilize our cash flow. So that they pay you slightly less on your design and engineering and architecture fees. You know they're gonna sell these boats over the next X amount of years. If they have to discount the boat to sell it, are you still getting paid the same licensing fee or you're a proportion of the boat sale? Uh, we're uh, typically a straight licensing fee. So you know the boat will be sold eventually because it has to. So you help Correct. their cash flow and guarantee your own future cash flow by taking less on the job up front and more Correct. coming in. But it's not commission based because it's a set amount and you know whether they sell the boat for 5 million bucks or 25 million, you're getting your licensing fee. And that's a risk. 
is typically small enough that it doesn't make a difference, a significant difference to the sales price of the boat. So what percentage of your business then is these safe production jobs that have these residuals versus the all new top-down design of some super snazzy expensive boat? Probably about 30% of our business. 30% is the production, 70% is the big boat. Uh, no, I'd say 30% is production. I would say probably uh, 50, 60% is uh, probably more like 50% is big production, uh, sorry, is big uh, custom work. And then probably around 20% of our business is commercial work. And commercial work is like a work boat? Yep, work boats. Gotcha. So which ones have the most profit? Commercial boats for sure. Really? Yeah. So government contracts or? Um... Yeah, and it's mostly because there isn't the subjective side of a yacht. The subjective side is, you know, is, uh, you know, rarely on a, um, on a Coast Guard boat will they want to discuss the styling for very long. So how is there more profit in that? Because I'm assuming the Coast Guard will, you know, they'll work up a specification, either you do that or they do that internally. I don't know how that works, but they have this spec sheet and they go out to four or five shipyards and they need all these bids coming in. So are you bidding out the actual boat or the specification yeah, worker? We, we rarely bid uh, against other firms. Um, so typically the Coast Guard will come to us and ask us to do a specific scope of work on a specific boat and we'll design and do it. Uh, I would say uh, less than half of 1% of our work is ever bid. So you're getting the Coast Guard coming in then they don't need to bid that out because they know that they're actually going to be higher quality boats and uh, better service if they just work with you off the bat instead of spending the time to bid it out to five new people. Correct. So it seems the common theme here is that pretty much all of your work, all of your decisions are guided by very long-term thinking, trying to create a very high lifetime customer value, very little salesmanship, in really letting the products and the services that you're doing speak for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, when you talked about salesmen and I said we didn't have any salesmen, in fact, everybody in the office is a salesman because uh, at the end of the day, their profit is also tied to how, uh, how the whole project goes. If the, uh, if the clients are treated right and they feel that, they, uh, um, that we're doing the right uh, job by them and we're representing them carefully, then everybody wins. Right. No selling is also, no salesmanship is also a sales technique. It's just, you need to make sure that your services and products are damn good if you're going to do no selling and just say, here's my work. Let's let it stand by itself. Correct. Which is also something I've seen. You've probably seen this before. You see it every now and then. And that's when customers use the same suppliers and vendors over and over is when the work is super high quality, a job was really well done and there isn't any hard marketing or selling. It's just, okay, well, that was fantastic. Let's have you do it again. And often I'm assuming you probably get a better margin the second time because there's uh, way more trust. And there's more predictability. Like we've, um, we've got one shipyard that we've worked with now for 35 years. And I think collectively we've built, uh, I would guess, you know, upwards of close to a billion a billion and a half dollars worth of boats with them and um, and uh, over the years and we've never had a contract um, they uh, call us up uh, they tell us what they need from us uh, we do it 
Uh, we send them invoices. We've never had a dispute on an invoice, uh, but we're also darn careful that we never make sure there is a dispute. If there is a, any kind of dispute, we, or sorry, if there's any sort of question on an invoice, we would never we would never pursue it. It would just be suicide. The value is too too much in yep. the long term. No, nope. we we treat them extremely carefully as we do with everybody. But uh, at the end of the day, um, the relationship is far too valuable. Uh, it would be uh, just absolute suicide for us to do anything other than treat them perfectly. So I've found as we talk about this, that people that take this very long-term view with their business, how much the client is worth, usually they like to be treated that way when they're hiring someone or purchasing a product or service. What other businesses, when you've been the customer or the client, have you seen this very long-term view of quality with no salesmanship work? And you could recommend to a listener, hey, if you're in this industry or this vertical, forget your selling, forget your marketing, it's all about your product. The, the, I'll go back in a slightly different direction, but um, the, we asked years ago what, um, to our team, what is the definition of quality? And when you ask people that question, you get all these different answers. And I've always found them not very satisfying. Um, one of the guys in our office said, quality is exactly matching what you delivered with the predetermined specification. And so to me, when you break that down, it's saying, if I tell you that I'm gonna deliver on May 2nd, this scope of work to this quality, to this execution for this price, um, then if I deliver on May 22nd, that's quality. If I deliver uh, that exact thing a day earlier, to me, that's exceeding the expectations. If I deliver it a day later, that's a drop down from the quality. And I, I think it applies to just about everything. Because, you know, if I tell you, and whether to me, whether it's a, um, a McDonald's burger or, you know, a Rolls Royce car, um, to me, they both fail if they're not what you expected. If, if they can accurately convey in advance what you're going to get, and do exactly that, to me, that's high quality. So if the product or service matches its claims, that's a big win. If it yep. exceeds its claims, big win. If it exceeds its claims in less time than you said it would take, massive home run. Correct. Cool, very interesting. I've never thought about it that way. Makes a ton of sense. I think that architecture is very, very valuable for myself and for listeners. I'm gonna start putting that into play. I think that that long game is just it's so important. Give people something that exceeds expectations and they're going to be very happy and continue purchasing and listening or whatever action you want from them. Yep, exactly. Cool. Greg, thanks so much for coming on Multimillionaire Secrets in 30 Minutes. I know that I learned a ton. The way that you operate is very rational. It's very logical and it makes perfect sense. And I think there's absolute gold in here as far as hiring, um, non-selling and no salesmanship and using your product or work as the salesmanship. And I think people are going to really enjoy this and it's going to change a lot of their businesses. So thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Josh. Anytime.